Thank you, Wayne. Hi, everybody. I asked Wayne, I said, how many of the old gang are still here? And he said, only Ann and me. <laughs> See, uh, Kathy and I don't think that we're old. We, we live in total denial. Although I am shocked every morning when I look in the mirror. <laughs> who, who is that guy? <laughs> but it is a remarkable story, isn't it? This was the Israeli government's idea. You know what? It was the Lord's idea. It was the Lord's idea. And we were just uh, the people who happened to be in the right place at the right time. And um, I've often said uh, maybe the smartest thing that I ever did in terms of establishing a ministry here was inviting Wayne and Ann Hilsden to come and join us. Uh, I, I think really, you know, I'm, I'm, a, I'm a visionary, I'm a thin edge of the wedge kind of guy, although I don't look very thin. <laughs> but uh, the Lord knew that the long-term plan for this congregation was Wayne and Ann Hilston. And um, I remember shortly after they arrived, I had a little talk with Wayne about what I perceived in terms of the body of believers here in Israel. At that time, there was little groups of Jewish believers around the country, um, but there was no real uh, unity, no continuity, no sense of um, common cause. Uh, sometimes there was even conflict. And um, I remember saying to Wayne, you know, job number one for us as we established this congregation is to see if we can't bring some unity in the body here and that's where I think, and I mean this, I'm not flattering her, Anne Hilson really played a very important role because she began to uh, host um, conferences of believers from around the country and promoting their music, you know, their, their, their songs, uh, their sense of worship, uh, most of it, of course, in Hebrew, and most of the lyrics, biblical lyrics, you can't go wrong with that, and, Slowly, slowly, over the years, a kind of unity began to, to emerge. And um, I, I, you know, I don't know what the count would be today, Wayne, but I remember when we first arrived, there was maybe 3,000 believers in the land. And how many now? 25, 30,000? Yeah. Yeah. Well, you know, the Lord is, the Lord is faithful, and he does, he does his work, you know. Uh, we just have to kind of get out of the way. We really do. Um, I've never felt any pressure to see anybody come to Christ. That's his job. Nobody comes except the Father draws him. My job, Wayne's job, Chad's job, is simply to proclaim the gospel and let the Holy Spirit do the work. Now, there should be no performance anxiety for any of us. This is the Lord's work. And as, as it happens, this is the Lord's city. <laughs> and if there's anywhere uh, where um, the Lord is at work, it's right here because absolutely he has placed his name here. You know, this is the place where he's placed his name. I know there's a lot of stress, a lot of struggle. It's hard to find a country in the world these days that isn't in conflict. You know, you're looking at the anger and the violence in France or in the UK or in South Africa. 
I mean, I could go on and on. Um, right here in Israel, it's a tough time. And I have a word from the Lord for you today. I know that I'm speaking from Isaiah, but I want to start with Jeremiah. In chapter 6 of Jeremiah, in verse 16, Jeremiah speaks to the people of Israel, and this is what he says. Stand in the ways and see, and ask for the old paths where the good way is, and walk in it, and then you will find rest for your souls. The old paths. Wayne talked about, you know, the old people. <laughs> Sometimes we have a bit of a bias when it comes to the old paths. But I want to stress tonight, there is an old path worth walking. And it's as old as Abraham himself, the father of the faithful. Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. The God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. I mean, we, we can't get away from the remarkable place that Abraham has in history and also in our own personal spiritual lives. We cannot divorce our faith in Jesus from our root system in salvation history throughout what we call the Old Testament. But there is a remarkable incident in um, Genesis 18. It's a kind of a strange passage because as you read it, you really wonder what's going on. Abraham is um, at the Oaks of Mamre, which is very close to Hebron. And he set up his little tent city. He was a very wealthy guy. And even though he didn't have any children, he had a lot of slaves, he had a lot of animals, he had a lot of servants. And uh, you know, when Abraham moved like a Bedouin with his tents, uh, it was like a small village traveling from place to place. Anyhow, they had set up their little tent city near Hebron. And it was the heat of the day, and only those who've lived here know the heat of the day. <laughs> Um, and he looks up and he sees three guys coming over the horizon. And of course, you know, when you live in the desert, anytime someone shows up unexpected, you want to see them, you want to talk to them. And it's a part of desert hospitality that you really look after these guests. Anyway, these three guys arrive. Uh, he, um, Abraham, he, he, he hurries to ask Sarah and some of the servants to prepare a meal. He invites these guys in to set, sit under the tree or in the shade of his tent flap, I don't know where, but for sure he had several hours of conversation, delicious conversation with these three men. But what's really interesting about this is that sometimes these three men are referred to as they, sometimes they're referred to as he, sometimes they're referred to as I. And then, if you can believe it, sometimes they're referred to as the Lord. And you, you go through Genesis 18, and, and you know, it's almost like a whiplash. You know, what, what's going on here? And some you know, Bible scholars have said, well, this is a, a kind of a, a manifestation, a presentation of the, you know, the, the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Others have said it's, it's uh, you know, an early appearance of, of Jesus. Others have other explanations. 
I have no idea what's going on here. None. But what I do know is this. This was an encounter that Abraham had with the Lord. And after they've had this visit and they're on their way, they're on the way to Sodom, by the way, and they're walking away, and Abraham's kind of, you know, going with them, really not wanting them to leave, something happens. The men rose and looked toward Sodom. And Abraham went with them to send them on the way. And the Lord said, okay, here we have the three of them now called the Lord. Shall I, I, shall I hide from Abraham what I am doing? Since Abraham shall surely become a great and mighty nation, and all the nations of the earth shall be blessed in him, for I have known him, in order that he may command his children and his household after him, that they keep the way of the Lord, the way of the Lord, about to be described by the Lord himself, okay? This is not Catalan, this is not uh, King of Kings, this is not some kind of theological tradition. This is God himself declaring his way. The way of the Lord by doing righteousness and justice. Full stop. This is the old way, friends. Righteousness and justice. It's not a religious system. It's not a methodology, it's not a protocol, it's not even a theology. The Lord is establishing an ancient path here. And the ancient path is to walk in righteousness and justice. Now the interesting thing about it, and I, I'm no Hebrew scholar, I kinda, you know, I can get along. When we lived here, Kathy was fluent, my kids came up in the Israeli school system so they speak like Sabras. I, I am the doofus in the family. But I, 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 can, I can struggle with the biblical Hebrew slowly, slowly. But zadkah, which is translated righteousness, usually refers to the fulfillment of relationship with God, righteousness. And then sometimes, along with mishpat, it refers to the fulfillment of the horizontal relationship with neighbor. The way of the Lord The old path is the path of righteousness and justice. Now how we fulfill it is another story and I might just get at it a little bit when I'm concluding but we are to love the Lord to fulfill righteousness. We're to love our neighbor to fulfill justice. Which brings me to Isaiah 58. Now this is a famous chapter. A lot of you are very familiar with it. Um, it has um, had a lot of coverage. I did something scary the other day. Just, just because I'm curious. I checked in with uh, artificial intelligence. <laughs> Very scary. To see what artificial intelligence had to say about Isaiah 58. And man, they nailed it. I thought, who needs me? You know, just go to artificial intelligence. Scary world we're living in, friends. 
Don't get me started. This was probably happening on Yom Kippur. And the Lord speaks to Isaiah, who right off the top is reluctant to prophesy. I wrote a book years ago while I was pastoring here in Jerusalem called Theology for Non-Theologians. And I have a whole chapter in the book called How to Spot a False Prophet. Believe me, I've had a lot of experience in Jerusalem spotting false prophets. <laughs> I've had more false prophets. Well, the only one I know who's had more is, is Wayne, because he's been here longer. How to spot a false prophet. One of the characteristics of a true prophet is that he's reluctant to prophesy. He's not keen and eager to prophesy. Man, we had people, especially in the early days, Wayne, coming through, remember? And, and we had, already we had the biggest pulpit you know, in, the, in the country and they all wanted to come and, and speak in our church and they wanted our endorsement you know, for their newsletters. For the first couple of years I was nice to these people and then I had an epiphany. I discovered that nice is not a fruit of the spirit, hallelujah. So I began to interview them with hard questions. You remember the guy who wrote the book, 88 Reasons Why Jesus is Coming Back in 1988? You're all, too, you're all too young for that. No kidding, 88 Reasons Why Jesus is Coming Back in 1988. He came to Jerusalem, he wanted to preach in our pulpit. I said, no way, Jose. And he was offended. I said, you seem to know when Jesus is coming back. Jesus himself didn't know when he was coming back. Hello? <laughs> well, then the, uh, the Jesus you serve is not the Jesus I serve. Exactly. You're absolutely right on that one. <laughs> A true prophet is reluctant to prophesy, not eager to prophesy. Why? Because when he prophesies, He's speaking to himself. He's not outside the camp, he's inside the camp and he's preaching to himself. Anyway, he's reluctant. And so this is what the Lord says to him, verse one of chapter 58 of Isaiah. Cry aloud, spare not, don't hold it back, Isaiah. Lift up your voice like a trumpet, tell my people their transgression and the house of Jacob their sins. Yet they seek me daily. They delight to know my ways as a nation that did righteousness, did not forsake the ordinance of their God. They ask of me the ordinances of justice. So, you know, they understood the old path of righteousness and justice. Okay? They take delight in approaching God. But here's the kicker. A few of the more spiritually sensitive ones at this Yom Kippur gathering were aware of the fact that the Lord was not there. Why have we fasted, they say, and you, Lord, have not seen? Why have we afflicted our souls and you take no notice? The Lord's answer is like a fist to the jaw. And a true prophetic word is like a fist to the jaw. It always ends on a positive note, but it's always upsetting. I like Mike Tyson's theological insight when he said, everybody has a plan until you get slugged in the mouth. Prophetic word is like a fist to the jaw. On the day of your fast, 
You seek your own pleasure, and you exploit all your workers. Seek your own pleasure, exploit all your workers. Isaiah and Amos were contemporaries. Amos prophesied to the northern kingdom of Israel, Isaiah here in Judah. And uh, it was you know, a very prosperous time in the history of both the northern and the southern kingdoms. There was uncharacteristic talk of the summer homes and the winter homes of the well-to-do. Isaiah himself was a very wealthy guy. Um, but there was a socioeconomic divide that had occurred. It was not uncommon for many Israelites to have fellow Israelites working for them, sometimes even as slaves. And here they're having their fast day, and they're loving it. Everybody's in their Shabbat best. You know, there's been a lot of hype, a lot of expectation. I mean, Yom Kippur, you know, happens once a year. Um, exciting times. You know, we can put up with the fast because, you know, this is who we are. Seeking their own pleasure. And exploiting all their workers. What? The wealthy were in the house of God. The not wealthy were still working in the fields, keeping the oil of the economy flowing. There was this not only socioeconomic divide, but there was this very deep religious divide. And a fast day meant a universal cessation from labor. Nobody was to work. But here they were. The poor worked, the wealthy worshipped. Maybe a lot has not changed. <laughs> Kathy and I work in Africa. We have now for 23 years. And we work with the lowest of the low, the least of these, as Jesus put it. And sometimes, you know, we, well, we, not sometimes, every time, we go through, through whiplash. Even coming to Israel from, from um, central, uh, central Zambia, as we've just done in the last few days, we, 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 we go from abject poverty, we go from you know, young mothers who are dying of HIV and AIDS and other diseases, lying on, on their mud floor in their little hut, not able to raise their heads, and their little orphan kids looking around anxiously, wondering, is mommy going to live? We've worked with tens of thousands like this over 23 years. And then we come to modern Israel, and it's, it's whiplash. On the day of your fast, you seek your own pleasure, you exploit all your workers. You are unrighteous because you've reduced heaven to your own pleasure. You are unjust because your workers are not in the house of God with you. Is it, this, is it a fast I have chosen a day for a man to afflict his soul? Is it to bow down his head like a bulrush, spread out his sackcloth and ashes? Do you call this a fast, an acceptable day to the Lord? Is not this the fast I have chosen? This is the Lord speaking. 
to loose the bonds of wickedness, to undo the heavy burdens, to let the oppressed go free, that you break every yoke. Is it not to share your bread with the hungry, that you bring to your house the poor who are cast out, when you see the naked that you cover them, and hide not your yourself from your own flesh? Justice, 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 justice. As I'm reading this, I'm thinking about that famous passage in Isaiah 42. One of the famous suffering servant passages of Isaiah. Talking about Israel's coming Messiah. Behold my servant whom I uphold. My elect one in whom my soul delights. I put my spirit upon him and he will bring justice to the nations. He will not cry out nor raise his voice nor cause his voice to be heard in the street. A bruised reed he will not break. A smoking flax he will not quench. He will bring forth justice for truth. He will not fail nor be discouraged until he has established justice on the earth. I think if some of us were writing this passage, we'd write something like this. Behold my servant whom I uphold. He will have massive evangelistic crusades all around the world. He will be known on the internet and on television and in books. He will have a massive following. He will have a charismatic nature and he will lead people to the kingdom. That's what we, we would write. And often we misrepresent Jesus this way. Jesus is concerned about justice. One time Jesus was in Nazareth, just as he was starting out his ministry, and he took down the, the Torah portion because it was his turn to read it. And he read from Isaiah 61. The Spirit of the Lord God is upon me. This is Jesus talking, okay? Are we listening to this? The Spirit of the Lord God is upon me because the Lord has anointed me to preach good tidings to the poor. He has sent me to heal the brokenhearted, to proclaim liberty to the captives, the opening of the prison to those who are bound, to proclaim the acceptable year of the Lord and the day of vengeance of our God, to comfort all who mourn, to console those who mourn in Zion, to give them beauty for ashes, the oil of joy for mourning, the garment of praise for the spirit of heaviness, that they may be called trees of righteousness, the planting of the Lord, that he may be glorified. Interesting, in the 58 passage, as he goes on, the Lord says in verse 12, those from among you shall build the old waste places, you shall raise up the foundations of many generations, the way of the Lord, the foundation of many generations. 
and you shall be called repairer of the breach, the restorer of streets to dwell in. Friends, does Israel need repair today? Do the streets need restoration today? Does our world need restoration today? How is God gonna do it? Why doesn't he just make some kind of divine statement and just blast us all, you know, and start over again? I said to Kathy, not facetiously, just the other day in Africa, boy, if I was God, I would do things so much differently. <laughs> Wouldn't you? I mean, there's a few guys I would just, see you later. No, he chooses to work in and through his body. Why has he placed you here? Why is King of Kings about to celebrate its 40th in November? And God willing, Kath and I will be here for that. Why? We're not the only ones, but the Lord knows he needs as much salt and light in this city as he can get, and in this nation. He needs his body to repair the breach, to restore the streets. And this is all justice seeking, by the way. Then, in that passage I just read from 61 that Jesus read in the synagogue about himself, what's it say? These trees of righteousness, this planting of the Lord, they shall rebuild the old ruins. They shall raise up the former desolations. Friends, you know, so do I, our world is in a huge mess because we human beings are full of ourselves. We are sinners, we are covetous, we love money, the great cancer in our world is corruption, and it's everywhere. It's all about covetousness. It's all about love of money. And this is why the scripture says you, you have two options. You serve God or you serve money. Two options. It's not serve God, serve the devil. Serve God, serve money. Which is it gonna be? Our world is in a mess because we love money. If we choose to love God, on the other hand, and fulfill righteousness, then we will rebuild the old ruins. We will raise up the former desolations and we will reintroduce to our world the way of the Lord. Righteousness, justice. I've been preaching righteousness and justice my whole life. But this last 23 years in Africa, it's been pretty much all that I have preached. Because when the Lord gave me a vision for caring for orphans and widows in Southern Africa when they were all dying of HIV and AIDS, back before antiretrovirals were invented, when you got HIV, you were dead. Over 30% well, the people living in KwaZulu-Natal, which is the big province surrounding Durban in southeastern uh, South Africa, 
of the people were HIV infected, 33%. So when I would walk down the streets of Durban, you know, one, two, three, one, two, three, every third person is going to die. The Lord made it very strong in my spirit that the biggest orphan and widowmaker in the history of mankind was HIV and AIDS. And he reminded me of David's words in the Psalms, that God is a father to the fatherless and a defender of widows in his holy habitation. His core values begin with the weakest link. I had small conferences, I had big conferences. I had as many as 16, I had as many as 6,000. Didn't matter to me. Being a TV guy, I just speak to the camera. The camera is one person. But I looked at those pastors in front of me, and I said, fellas, nobody worships the Lord like Africans do. You sing, you dance, man, you, sh you shake everything that you can shake. I mean, I, believe me, some of the stuff you see in the churches there is really shaking. <laughs> I said, you know I have a good time in the house of the Lord. You know how to seek your own pleasure. But as you go to your house of worship, Usually it's a mud hut with a grass roof. You walk past that orphan, you walk past that orphan, you walk past that orphan, you ignore that widow. How can you do this? I've said it again and again and again. Pastor, you must not walk past that orphan on your way to the house of God, like the Levite and the priest passed the guy who was dying on the, on the road from Jericho to Jerusalem. You gotta get down on your knees and look that little guy in the face and say, hi, I'm Pastor so-and-so. What is your name? Take me to your mother. Take him by the hand. Let him take you to his mother. And as she's lying there about to die, say to her, ma'am, I'm Pastor so-and-so from this congregation and from now on, we are going to look after you. You know the first pushback I got from the pastors in Africa? We don't have the money to do that. I said, what? You don't have the money. And yet you claim to serve the God who owns the cattle on a thousand hills. You don't have the money. You want to insult your heavenly father. Pastors, money follows ministry. It does not precede it. I often say to pastors who want to build a bigger building and have a bigger congregation, bigger this and bigger that. Forget the bigger. Just serve the Lord faithfully. Day by day. You know, I, my first uh, foray back in uh, 2000 into Southern Africa, I, I, I had a big church, you know, I, I had a staff of 35 people. I, I left it all and started from scratch. Kathy and I have done this four times, by the way. I tell people I'm afflicted with downward mobility. <laughs> oh, all kinds of pastors. Jim, why aren't you still in Jerusalem? I say, simple answer. It's God's work, not mine. He called me to be the thin edge of the wedge. He didn't call me to build my own kingdom. 
He's called others to oversee and grow and pastor this congregation. And we all know who the others are. He didn't call me to do that. Anyway, I just had a meeting with uh, 60 Tanzanian pastors for three hours in a hotel conference room. And I lifted my voice like a trumpet, <laughs> declared to the people their sins. At the end of it, a guy at the back stands up. He was a pretty courageous fellow, I think. Candeline, you're a Canadian. You're not an African. You don't understand our culture. You don't know our history. And you don't realize that HIV and AIDS is God's punishment on sexual immorality. Hello. My first meeting. They, they went away, and the hotel was right next to the Indian Ocean. I walked down to the shore, the waves of the Indian Ocean lapping on my feet. It's almost dark. I said, Lord, I can't do this. This is too big for me. But you've called me to do it. He gave me a vision. Every church of Mother Teresa every African church, a Mother Teresa. I said, I'm not gonna quit because you called me to do it. But Father, how in the world am I gonna get started? I need at least a million dollars. I've never heard the Lord audibly, but I certainly do hear him in my heart. I got a direct answer, Jim. I give you a million dollars, you forget me. Here's the deal. You do a million dollar job, I'll pay the bills. Man, that hit me like a sledgehammer. I thought, absolutely, you're right. Of course he's right, he's always right. 23 years later, I don't know how, how many millions and millions and millions and millions of dollars. The Lord has provided because money always follows ministry, it does not precede it. And so I'm always taking risks. I'm always taking a chance. I'm always ready to live with nothing. I must, because if I'm living with nothing, I've got everything. Ultimately, he is our security. There is no other security. I see these ads on television, on the internet, about uh, all these investment schemes, and they always show 65-year-old guy with white hair, a totally flat stomach, a yellow sweater, on a sailboat with a gorgeous wife like I have. And this, was, this, this is the lie. You invest with us, you'll live forever. Friends, the times of our lives are in his hands. We have no guarantee of tomorrow, but we do know who holds tomorrow, amen? amen? Okay, I gotta stop.
Jeremiah again. In those days and at that time, I will cause to grow up to David a branch of righteousness. Capital B, branch of righteousness. He shall execute justice and righteousness in the earth. And Jerusalem will be called the Lord our righteousness. The Lord our righteousness. This is the goal. This is the dream. This is why this congregation is here. The Lord is raising up the city that will be known as the Lord our righteousness. Hallelujah. I, I'm sorry, I keep checking my watch. I'm a TV guy, I go to the last second, okay? I'm exact, last second, I was told till 6.30, so you're safe, okay? If you wanna watch my show, it's just Jim Catalan Today, jimcatalantoday.com. I've been on for five years all over the world with the internet, and it's very cool. I just go through Matthew, Mark, Luke, Acts, and John. I include Acts in the Gospels because Acts is volume two of Luke. If you wanna check out our ministry, it's wowmission.com. Wow stands for working for orphans and widows. Wowmission.com. Jesus is approached by a young scribe. The guy's obviously impressed with him. He wants to kind of get to the bottom of who this Jesus is and why he does what he does. And he basically asks him the question, what's at the bottom line? What does God expect of me? And Jesus responds with something we just sang. Shema Israel Adonai Ochenu Adonai Chad. Here is O Lord our God, the Lord is one. And, and, you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. The second is like unto it, you shall love your neighbor as yourself. He hit the sweet spot of Old Testament prophecy, righteousness and justice. That's Jesus talking. And we're going right back to the way of the Lord as the Lord presented it to Abraham. This is not rocket science, friends. And believe me, not only, you know, I've been pastoring for 53 years, but uh, during our time here in Jerusalem, I just got fed up with denominational theological battles. Usually it's all over human interpretation. It's all what it's about. And what happens is we come up with our interpretation and then our interpretation has certain domino effect, and the domino effect, usually in terms of legalisms, becomes as uh, authoritative as the scripture itself. So we have these big fights. I remember when I was a kid growing up as a Pentecostal, we were the only ones going to heaven. The Baptists, for sure, were not going to heaven. <laughs> we all have a tendency, friends, to think in a sectarian way. We think in a sectarian way politically. You have to be careful as believers. We must not, like the disciples, make the big error of becoming religious nationalists either. You know, these disciples, amazing. They go through all they go through with Jesus. They even go through the resurrection. They're on the Mount of Ascension and Jesus is about to go to heaven. And the guys say, uh, are you at this time going to restore the kingdom to Israel? You know, we're your cabinet, remember? James and John, they got their mother to, to, 
try to get right and left hand, forget those guys, but we want to rule with you. That's basically what they're saying. Religious nationalism was a powerful motivator for these guys. It was only the day of Pentecost that changed things. The day of Pentecost, with one accord, and the fire and the power of the Holy Spirit descended upon them. And I am a Pentecostal charismatic, but fortunately I'm out of time, so I won't get into that and offend a lot of you. He is Lord. He is Lord. He is risen from the dead, and he is Lord. Every knee shall bow. Every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord. Hallelujah. Father, thank you for your presence. Thank you for your word, which is quick and powerful. You've called us to walk the way of the Lord. Help us, O oh Lord, to love you with all our heart, soul, mind, and strength, and to love our neighbor as ourselves. May the Lord bless you. Shalom.